0: You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway.
1: I'm not making it up. They have carefully scheduled the big interview between Prince Harry as he is universally known, at least except in Buckingham Palace where he's known as something quite different, I can assure you. Uh, he has arranged at the end of Moat at 9pm uh, precisely to spill the beans on the rest of his family, except they're nothing as succulent as beans. They are toxic, poisonous gooseberries that will pour forth from his jowls. And it's going to be a bumpy ride for the royals. I told you back then that the royal family would never have a glad, confident morning again after they were stripped of, bereft of, the residual respect and admiration for the late Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. But even I, a staunch Republican, did not imagine that the House of Windsor would come tumbling down quite so fast, quite so spectacularly. It is, as I say, Shakespeare couldn't have written it. Tarantino would have had to have written it. Two princes of the royal blood literally rolling around the floor in the palace with the head of Harry ending up in a dog bowl, not cut from his shoulders as would have been the case in the old days, but his head ended in a dog bowl and it was all over an American broad. An American broad that William and his wife, Kate, the future queen of the United Kingdom used to watch in her particularly salacious sex scenes on Netflix. Come to think of it, it would have made a great Netflix episode. And may yet, The Crown isn't finished yet, at least the series of The Crown isn't finished yet. It's an open question whether the British monarchy can survive. The new book Spare by Prince Harry. He's definitely spared. I have no uh, dog in this fight. We're running a poll. Who do you support in the royal punch-up? Harry or William? William's winning it out the park two to one. There should have been a third option for I don't give a toss unless it is a fight to the death of the monarchy and the absurd ruritarian fantasy that we can leave the head of stateship to the happenstance of the first-born male in the family. Thank your lucky stars that it wasn't Harry that was born first, I say to you royalists who continue to hold up the standard. If not high, then at least half-heartedly. The truth is nobody in any sane frame of mind would be thinking about this matter at all. And yet, if you read the public prints and followed the vulgar tabloid television, you would find that the British are talking of little else. They're not talking about the fact that hundreds of thousands of British workers have had to go on strike in this bleak midwinter to try to at least mitigate the wage cuts that their employers are imposing upon them. They're not talking about the fact that many of them, me included, are now paying four times as much to heat our homes as we were at this time last year, four times higher. They're not talking about the fact that Britain's unemployment is multiplying, underemployment, multiplying, short time working, multiplying companies going out of business at a faster rate than any other country in the OECD, with a higher rate of inflation than any other country in the OECD other than the Netherlands, about which Lee said soonest mended. The British are not talking about the fact that our inflation rate is already double-digit and may reach before this 12 month is out. They're not talking about the fact that our recession in which we are already plunged is going to be more severe than any, any country in the OECD. They're not talking about the fact that in this sea of troubles we are led by King Charles and somebody called Rashid Sunak who wandered in off the street in Mayfair, and was appointed by a handful of people as Britain's prime minister. Now, I predicted here just a week or so ago that the Tories were done for unless they brought back Boris Johnson. And guess what? One word from me and the mother of all talk shows, and it's already happening. The Sunday newspapers are filled with news of the plotting that is going on at Westminster and in Whitehall, on the simple premise that whilst even Boris Johnson might not be able to win the next election for the Conservatives, he's not going to lose by hundreds of Labour victories. And the more that he mitigates the scale of that defeat, the more Conservative MPs will still be able to call themselves MPs, after the next election. And trust me, especially with conservatives, but followed closely by the so-called Labour Party, the only thing that really matters to most members of parliament is that they continue to be members of parliament. They will eat any ordure. They will bite any carpet. They will swallow any lie. They will regurgitate any falsehood, any canard. They will say that black is white, and white is black, and day is night, and that winter is really a mild summer's day. They'll do anything to remain members of parliament. And the truth is that if Boris Johnson is their leader, it changes the game, and in a good way for the conservatives, that's why Uh, desperate Dan Hodges is uh, out today batting for the Keir Starmerites that he knows and loves so well that the Labourites are not really worried about a return of Boris Johnson. In fact, they would quite like that to happen. The truth is the opposite. And the Tories' view is summed up by the otherwise execrable Nadine Doris in the Mail on Sunday today when she makes the very point I've just made, but less eloquently. If you want to remain a Member of Parliament, you better find a way to reinstate Boris Johnson as Britain's Prime Minister. Not that it will matter much in the great scheme of things, whether Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, or the, uh, what's his name, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader. Whoever is the Prime Minister of Britain is going to follow the same policies, which are written in Brussels and written in Washington. The economic policies are written in Brussels. The foreign policies are written in Washington. And the British people's interests a very distant third place because Washington is now calling all of the tunes as more and more of public opinion in Europe is beginning to realize that's why they have to censor the news that's why they have to make sure that you never see the truth it's why you have to keep arguing about William and Harry it's why they can Conduct these bread and circuses so that you will not focus as, for example, the French people are doing this very weekend in turning out in their hundreds of thousands on the streets of their country, protesting their government and its foreign and domestic policies. That's happening all over Europe, but you don't know about it because RT has been taken off the air, Sputnik has been taken off the air. We are the last man standing that will tell you about what's happening on the streets of France, on the streets of Prague, on the streets of Germany. We are the last people left telling the truth to a mass audience. And they have to have it that way because it might be catching There should have been a Christmas truce for the Orthodox Christmas, which falls this weekend. Russia offered Ukraine a ceasefire for Christmas, which could have been built upon, of course. Maybe that's why they turned it down, because they didn't want to build upon it. Although it's difficult to see why. Why any Ukrainian leader would want to continue with the attrition that is massacring huge numbers of increasingly older and increasingly younger Ukrainian conscripts. Either you're in the army already and with a very good chance of being dead, or you're driving around in a top of the range Audi in the rest of Europe. Trust me, I've seen a hundred of them over the course of the last few months on the European continent. You've either fled the country if you've got money or you thought you were too old to be conscripted, but not now. Men over 60 are now being sent into the charnel house at Bakhmut right now, where an epic battle, second only to the battle for Mariupol in this conflict so far, is currently taking place. 60 year olds and 16 year olds are currently being shipped into the slaughterhouse of Bakhmut. And Bakhmut is a very strategically important battle. And when the Russian forces prevail, as they will, it may be a massive turning point in the war. It may very well lead to a quick collapse of all remaining Ukrainian forces east of the Dnipro River and the de facto partition of the country. As one Ukrainian minister put it today, we're being offered the Korea solution and a 38th parallel. Well, maybe so, except the partition will not be nearly so kind to Western Ukraine as it was to South Korea. The truth is that the landlocked, rump, Western Ukrainian state, pray to NATO, pray to Hungary, pray to Polish revanchism, will be a sorry, sorry state of affairs. It will be like Kosovo without the laughs. It will be like Kosovo without anything like the happy ending. The truth is that Ukraine is finished as a state. And I say that with a very heavy heart. I love the Ukrainian people. I never wanted this war to begin. I did my best to raise my voice and win people to my argument that the Minsk-2 agreements signed by the regime in Kiev, guaranteed by the regimes in Berlin and Paris, guaranteed ultimately by adoption by the Security Council of the United Nations that that Minsk II agreement could bring an end to the long war which had already raged for seven years in the Donbass that it had been implemented but the forces that are keeping the war going right now had no intention of implementing that agreement. Indeed, in a remarkable revelation, remarkably candid revelation, Angela Merkel, the then German Chancellor, recently said in an interview that Minsk was never intended to be implemented. It was to buy time for Ukrainian rearmament, retraining, reinforcement by the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the French government has echoed that. As a piece of insouciant arrogance, rendering all further agreements guaranteed by them null and void before they're even reached, the revelation has not been missed in Moscow or in Beijing. No agreement with these people is worth the paper it isn't even written on. No verbal agreement like the one given to Gorbachev that NATO would not expand one inch, I'm quoting, to the east or the written one in the Minsk agreement. Nothing that these people agree to can be trusted. And so from Russia's point of view, there's really nothing more to be gained by negotiating with Anyone. And I suspect that the prospect of a Christmas ceasefire was the last straw when the Ukrainian government slapped the Russian government in the face with that offer. So it's a battle to the death. Now, before getting on with the show, I just want to talk for a minute about the Middle East because. It's a subject dear to my heart, of course, but because when nobody is paying attention to what's happening in the Middle East, the greatest dangers lie therein. The Iran nuclear deal is dead. Joe Biden told a camera that just a couple of weeks ago, although said to the camera, we're not going to announce it, he said announcing it the Iran nuclear deal is dead Iran has offered a full comprehensive reset of its relations with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia I hope that that can be achieved but the fly in the ointment here is somebody called Benjamin Netanyahu who's back in power in Tel Aviv Though nowadays, probably in Jerusalem, in illegally annexed Jerusalem, and he's spoiling for a diversion. A diversion to take the minds of his own people who were out demonstrating in significant numbers against him in Tel Aviv last night, to divert the attention of the world from the fact that he now leads a government so grisly that it can be described as a chamber of horrors. It can be described as a waxwork museum of some of the most foul political personalities ever assembled in any country as a cabinet. People that even the likes of Sharon, Begin, Shamir, None of the previous Israeli leaders would have agreed even to sit down in the same room as the people who are now running the show in Israel. And while the world's attention is diverted to other theatres like the European theatre, there must be a clear and present danger that Netanyahu will launch devastating war against Lebanon, against Syria, and yes, perhaps even against Iran. Before the tectonic plates get time to shift and settle down, before the rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and China and Russia solidifies, before any possibility of any Saudi-Iranian rapprochement has any possibility of getting Out of the tracks. These dangers, dear viewers, are real, clear, and present. And my next guest is best placed to talk about them.
2: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. My first guest of the evening, a very popular guest whenever she's joined us, is the author, journalist and war correspondent Ghadi Francis you welcome to the mother of all talk shows once again, it's been too long since we last saw you. Uh, bring us uh, up to date, will you, with what's happening across the border from you, where Netanyahu's administration has gotten off to a little bit of a rocky start, uh, and my thesis that that's precisely why he's at his most dangerous. What do you think about that?
3: Good evening, sir. I totally agree as usual. Actually, one year ago, exactly one year ago, I was here with you on the Mother of All Talk shows, and we were talking about the direct assassination of the Palestinian-American journalist Shirin Abu Akhli, whom later on was proven to be assassinated directly by snipers and by Israeli forces while she was doing her job as a journalist. I was uh, sure to... I made sure to mention this fact as a beginning uh, before I talk, because uh, it seems as if in the Middle East to the global eye and to the viewers and to the news outlets and the mainstream media, it seems as if in the Middle East, some lives matter more than others. Some activists' lives matter more than others. Some whole global propaganda is uh, sometimes in parallel with the, with what the world wants to portray or to talk about the regimes in the region. And sometimes some killings are not really uh, in the same sense for the global propaganda and then uh, they are forgotten. I just want to take one moment to contemplate on whether uh, the journalist, the very known proven to be killed in the direct daylight, Shirin Abu Akhle was Iranian and not Palestinian. Uh, I was wondering, what would the international media do? Uh, not to say that one life matters more than the other, but just to portray at this one-eyed world, this great hypocrisy of a media that we all live uh, uh, with. So back to that, sir. Now, as I am in Beirut, what's happening across the borders is not really new to us. But it is more, the audacity is becoming more and more. We have never, uh, uh, maybe even in our best uh, wishes, wished to have such a racist, such a uh, criminal uh, foe in front of us. And this really is good for us, for our cause, for the cause of the people, the native people that have been uh, displaced, that have been killed, that have been up, uh, living through an apartheid system with the Israeli uh, occupation for like decades. What Netanyahu is doing is just he's showing the face of what the actual uh, Zionist ideology wanted to do and it uh, remains uh, undoing. Actually, it is good because it, uh, it's once again showing the actual uh, reality of this uh, system, of, of this brutal uh, racist uh, direct appetite system that is going on in the occupied lands in Palestine.
1: Well, it's good if people are paying attention, Gadi. but if they're not, then the killing and, and uh, colonization continues apace and ever more brazenly and bloodly. I'm so old that when I became involved in this question, first of all, it was labor who were in power in israel and they paraded around believe it or not in socialist clothes they were even members of the so-called socialist international since when we have seen a swing all the way to this current israeli cabinet where netanyahu is the most moderate guy in the cabinet the rest of them are murderous cutthroats and are described as such even by other Israeli politicians and journalists like our good friend Gideon Levy who is a regular guest on the show. Uh, and yet you're still not allowed to criticise their actions. You're still not al- allowed to call it what it is uh, for fear of being banned. For l- the, Kenneth Roth, of Human Rights Watch, an absolute thoroughgoing hypocrite and reactionary, has just been blackballed for a professorship at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard because of mild criticism of Israel that he uttered. That's the situation, isn't it?
3: I uh, just uh, just now I was uh, checking one of the most uh, productive and uh, useful pages on Twitter, and she was blocked and banned as well. Every day we have something like that. Like that, we're not uh, we're not uh, supposed to document, to factualize, to really say what it is. Because um, even during the wars, when there are these raids, these Israeli raids, whether they are on the besieged uh, Gaza Strip. Or other places in Palestine, and media are always targeted. The, the journalists are always bullied, killed, and assassinated because actually they don't want these facts to come out. Now, as uh, organizations, as personalities, as academic academic personalities and media personalities, we're all facing that. And the funny part is, we you are being called or uh, or uh, uh, tagged as anti semite when when you are actually a person from this. I am a Semite. How can I be anti-Semite if I'm speaking about an apartheid that is happening? We have a lot of pressure and oppression. And the colonization that is happening, it is with the help of all the world, all the mainstream media, and a lot of the Arab or the actually local or regional uh, entities as well. But the good part, the the, the shining part, the, the, the full part of the glass, the half, part of the glass, sir, is that the Palestinian youth are stronger than ever. They are more aware than ever. And they are—they have been uh, able to prove themselves for the past two, three years. They have been able to prove themselves as really uh, united and aware and they have been able to prove their causes everywhere inside Palestine. From actually Janine, where the oppression is ongoing day to day, day in, day out. Just last week, two Palestinian teens were killed uh, in the the West Bank. Uh, As we speak right now, women, children, journalists, teenagers, they're being kidnapped. They're being uh, uh, suspended. They're being uh, uh, arrested without even any uh, charge. And uh, this has formed a certain awareness, and the people now are, especially the, the youth, they're more able to use the, sk- the tools and the skills to really shed a light on uh, what their lives uh, are like. It is not easy, but when Netanyahu becomes uh, uh, the most uh, moderate uh, figure in the Israeli uh, government or in the Israeli coalitions right now, um, this really uh, calls for... Uh, fear, of course. We are. Uh, we have to take into consideration that now, someone who says death to Arabs is not an extremist. Extremist on the street now he's part of the governing entity. But also, this in a way is also very good because now it is very obvious to everyone in the world uh, what kind of apartheid uh, mentality the people of Palestine are living and uh, and facing. And uh, the truth must, uh, in the end, must shine. As we speak right now, uh, there are uh, teens and university students from Tul Karim, to Jenin, to uh, uh, Bethlehem, to al to actually Jerusalem. They are active everywhere on social media and the streets, and they are not letting this pass. Uh, and whether the, uh, the Arab leadership, the, uh, the Arab politicians, Uh, in uh, the uh, Gulf region, in the Levant region, in Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, Iraq, whether they are really in line with the youth, with the Palestinian youth or not, it's not really going to change. The demographics, the reality, the future is here. And uh, these kids, without the help of anyone in the world, without uh, uh, weapons, without money, without funds, they have been able to raised their voice ever since Sheikh Jarrah and till they, and this for me as a person in this region is the hope uh, and is the future and um, Netanyahu can rule now but nobody can defend this apartheid any any longer maybe one year maybe two years but in the end the world cannot remain silent because it's very obvious we're being killed down the street sir. La- just last month uh, Nurhan al-Sayyad is a 14-year-old uh, girl she was kidnapped and beaten by settlers and then later on uh, 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 she was found uh, very brutally beaten just because she's a Palestinian girl living in her own ancestors' land and uh, even the moderate Jews of the society over there are facing such things. Uh, we cannot really forget now a few months ago it was the olive season harvest all across the Mediterranean and in Palestine, where the olive uh, season is something encrypted in the legacy for thousands and thousands of years, ever since the Palestinian Jesus was born. But just like every year, the farmers are being, um, uh, they're being tackled, they're being terrorized, they're being beaten up and sometimes killed when they're trying to go and harvest their trees. Now, this cannot be always displaced as this is the terrorism while you have uh, Ben-Gavir uh, shouting death to Arabs and you're going to sell this as a moderate politician anymore, or a d- democracy or whatever they used to say, it is the leading democracy in the Middle East. It's not. It is a place where 14-year-old girls are being beaten up just because they are of a certain race, ethnicity, religion. Uh, and this, sir, uh, is the ABC of an apartheid. And what uh, the world wouldn't uh, tolerate decades ago and what South Africa and other nations all around the world was able to break decades ago will not be tolerated in Palestine where we have thousands and thousands of very enlightened, very strong, and very uh, uh, very uh, decided uh, people, and they will uh, they will get their rights one way or the other well mandela 's grandson
1: I saw just the other day. Uh, denouncing what he called apartheid in fact he says what the Palestinians are facing is much worse than the apartheid that the uh, Africans in uh, apartheid South Africa faced and of course he was then uh, savaged as an anti-semite the same trick they tried uh, with uh, with Archbishop Desmond Tutu when he said something similar If I was in the British Labour Party, God forbid, and I described Israel as an apartheid state, I would be expelled from the party for that single comment. Only got time uh, to deal with one more subject, Gadi, if you'll bear with me. Uh, It seems to me that the uh, scrapping of the Iran nuclear deal by the Joe Biden administration is uh, pregnant with some real uh, formidable possibilities, one of which is that Iran now develops a nuclear weapon. Uh, It says it is theologically opposed to uh, such a weapon, but it now at least has no treaty obligation not to build one as it previously did with the Iran nuclear deal. Israel is raising as much as it can the fear of such a thing, not least in Saudi Arabia. At the same time, Iran is offering an olive branch to Saudi Arabia. The plates are still shifting in the Persian Gulf region. How would you summarize where we are there?
3: Well, sir, here in this region, ever since 1979, Uh, It has been an international pariah. The Islamic uh, Republic of Iran has not been a friend of the West or a beloved figure. So when you see that the West or Saudi Arabia or Israel or the United States has a problem with Iran, it is not something new. Now we are speaking about a state that has been under sanctions for more than three decades. They have been an international pariah and uh, demonized for all these uh, decades and all these years. So now if the Americans are angry or the treaty is not gonna happen, or there's uh, like uh, a fear or a brewing fear uh, of Iran, what more would the West do? Declare war if they were po- if it was possible and feasible, they would have done it like years ago. And what has been happening in the whole Middle East is a proxy warfare with Iran, whether it is the, um, uh, the, the maritime warfare, sometimes in the Arab Sea, in the Arab Gulf, uh, there's like oil tanks that are hit here or there, uh, indirect uh, uh, goals. Sometimes there are targets in Syria that the Israelis target, and then they say this is an Iranian uh, target, and uh, sometimes in uh, Iraq as well. So when we say that the West has a problem with, with Iran, this is not new. And when we say that Israel is trying to make a problem or like to to increase or accumulate this uh, accelerate this with the Saudi arabians, also this is not uh, true. But now we are speaking about a regime that has been able to prove itself very worthy of making manufacturing weapons, drones, military drones, military rockets, ballistic rockets, and also as the whole world knows, this nuclear enrichment and uh, the uranium enrichments, and so on. Yes, it is a theological no-no for the Islamic uh, leadership of Iran uh, to have a nuclear bomb, but uh, whatever it was bargaining or it was uh, offering the West wasn't something different. The Iranians have remained on their terms before, during, and after the nuclear uh, talks were like uh, coming to a good term or a bad term. The Iranians have always said the same thing you uh, release the sanctions, and we will talk about other, other things. The West has been the, the party that has been changing and fluctuating. Sometimes they want to uh, release the sanctions over the IRGC, and sometimes they, sell, they say, no, you can sell these nations or not. But uh, the fact is Saudi Arabia does not have the ability to fight Iran, does not have the... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, they don't want to fight Iran. They want to see every nation is now looking for its own interest, especially with, with the world changing since the last uh, February, since the whole world stopped and was watching what's happening uh, uh, between Russia and Ukraine. So Saudi Arabia now at the time when, the, for the first time, maybe since the fa- fund founding of, of Saudi Arabia, it is saying no to the terms of the United States. The OPEC uh, is... Uh, Uh, sometimes saying we want to have an oil cut production, so on there with the Chinese and with the Russians, they're forming their own policies at such a time to drive Saudi Arabia to fight Iran. I don't think it's possible when you see that they are actually leading indirect talks in Iraq or the Saudis are coming back to Syria or all these fronts that were basically front lines between Iranians and Saudi Arabians now are uh, uh, places of uh, maybe talk or indirect talk. So I don't think anything would change. I think it's more like a noise, and uh, yes, they are trying to cause a problem, and of course they are causing a different uh, narrative about Iran in the region and in the world, whether it's in the media or the tongues and the facts that are being, uh, like, perturbated around. But also the main strengths of Iran, whether it's the few million people or the several million people that we saw out on the streets when Qasem Soleimani was assassinated, these people are Iranians as well. These people back the Iranian Islamic regime as is. And the Islamic regime manufactures weapons, drones, uh, that has oil production and uh, nuclear power. So uh, I don't think it's going to to face any different or uh, let's say harder uh, uh, circumstances in the future. It hasn't been an easy way for Iran during the past decades. And in the light of all these sanctions and all this Western policy towards Iran, Iran was able to uh, uh, grow. Uh, the, the Shah Iran, before it was Islamic, the Shah Iran was not able to talk or to uh, uh, articulate its influence in five or six other uh, countries in the Middle East. Today, when you speak about the Islamic uh, regime in Iran, you are speaking about about a regime that has an alliance with Syria, Iraq, uh, Yemen, Lebanon, Bahrain, parts of uh, uh, maybe Kuwait or Oman. So you are not talking about a regime that is closed. In Turkey as well, and Kurdistan, the the Iraqi Kurdistan. So you are speaking about an Iran that is even more powerful than it was uh, before and that doesn't really need... uh, anything from the West in this region. So I think it's all noise and uh, we have a a tough uh, few months to come, but uh, another uh, reality must be drawn and diplomacy will come back to solve the issue because there will be no such war with Iran. Nobody can handle such a war with a very strong nuclear Iran. Ghadi
1: Francis, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Let's hear the phone lines. Mohammed is in Reading. And he disagrees with me. That's why his call has been prioritized.
4: Mohamed, welcome. What would you like to say? Well, first of all, um, I do have a slight bone to pick with you, George. Um, As much as we go back, um, I I notice often, not just on on the mother of all talk shows, but also on your tweets, you're very critical towards um, causes of recession, causes of um, uh, gas prices going up, causes of um, financial and economical difficulties. Um, especially in the UK, and what, what, what every human has got to realize is there's got to be some form of sacrifice um, when trying to do good. When being against corruption, for example, there's got to be a form of sacrifice, George, so you can't have your cake and eat it. In terms of, for example, the economy, I would rather the economy collapses completely if it meant that there'd be no corruption in the Middle East, that there'd be no corruption globally. I don't know if you can agree with me on this point. but you've got to Yeah, be...
1: there won't be many takers uh, for that to manifest, or Mohammed. I hope you realise that you would rather our economy collapsed uh, than that there was corruption in the Middle East. I understand what you're saying, but you won't expect the British people to agree to that, would you?
4: A chase of British people's votes. I'm not a chase of uh, approval of people. I'm, I'm a chase of integrity, of doing the right thing, mm-hmm. pleasing to, to my creator, to Allah, not, not engaging in any form of polytheism and not engaging any, in any form of corruption. A quarter of the global's well, uh, sorry, a quarter of the global's um, crude oil resources, George, comes from Iraq. Um, so perpetual prices, mm-hmm. you straight away should put your hand up and say, listen, let it be expensive. It's not a big deal. As an example, I'm not talking about natural gas. Granted, natural gas, Um, Russia is number one. Well, uh, yeah, okay,
1: Mohammed, you're clearly financially comfortable and uh, are ready to pay the price, and that is uh, to your credit. But I can assure you that the vast majority of people in Britain are not financially comfortable, are struggling to pay their bills, and uh, demand and have, I think, the right to a government in Britain that will act for the British people in their interests rather than in the interests of others. Thanks for the call, though. Raymond in Swansea also disagrees with me. That's why he's been prioritised too. Go ahead, Raymond.
5: Let's say you could um, wake up tomorrow and have all your dreams come true. And how would you then... What... what Okay, let's say Netanyahu's watching your show, and then he wakes up tomorrow and says, you know what, George is right. We should just leave Israel. We should hand it back to the Palestinians. John, where, where do they go?
1: Uh, well, my policy, uh, although I supported the Oslo Agreement, you may recall the Oslo Agreement, not many people do, least of all in Israel, uh, which was supposed to divide the very small territory, smaller than one park in South Africa. The Kruger National Park is larger than the entire territory uh, of Israel-Palestine, but was supposed to divide it. It's 30 years old and at least 25 years dead. So I used to support that, but I no longer do. I favor, as I did in South Africa, uh, an attempt to build a multiracial, a multicultural, democratic state in the area, and therefore, I don't care what you call it, Raymond, Uh, you could call it Israel-Palestine, you could call it Palestine-Israel, you could call it something else entirely, Uh, you could call it the Holy Land, Uh, is uh, not a bad idea, now that it strikes me, Uh, but uh, there will have to be a, 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 a reconciliation of the rights of the Palestinian people who've been wiped off the map their country has been wiped off the map their people have been scattered to the four corners of the earth and those that remain under brutal occupation siege annexation are uh, growing in number and not going anywhere and so unless you want endless conflict in the region with all of the consequences of that, you should be ready, Raymond, to agree with me that you can't have an apartheid state in the 21st century. Everyone has to have the same rights in a 21st century country. You can't say that this group of citizens are first class, this group are second class, and this group Numbering millions in the occupied territories, occupied since 1967,
5: are third-class citizens. That will not last, is my point, Raymond. But what you're what you're talking about there is some kind of utopian society which doesn't work anywhere in the world. Doesn't matter how you dress it up. So well, uh, the question is well, then: Couldn't well, then what, countries what's your, perhaps what, like what, Iran what, or or could they perhaps take on? The Palestinians that are within Israel as their own citizens. Sorry, that's my daughter. What do you mean? What do you mean to? Te- what,
1: what? What? What do you mean? Take them on? Like make them leave their country and go and live in Iran?
5: Like Islam? Like it's what you're describing sounds fantastic, but let's be honest, it's not going to happen. So, well, it certainly,
1: certainly sounds more fantastic than your idea well, of no. <laughs> actually emptying Palestine of the Palestinians and shipping them to Iran. What have they got to do
5: with Iran? Well, you've just said that, uh, that Netanyahu is going to go to war with Iran, potentially, causing next yeah, war no,
1: no, no, Raymond, it may be a bad line. I'm trying to get your thinking here why? Why would Palestinians go and live in
5: Iran? Why? Why? But I think it's more it's a more feasible prospect than perhaps. And I'm not saying that Israel gets to keep all of the Palestinian land that they got, but it's 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 cut up in half. That there's clear designated borders. This is your country. This is your country. Do you see what I mean? Done. When's that happening? When's that happening, Roman? Well, exactly. It's like the war in Ukraine and it's like two different ideologies that, that go against one another. Yeah, but
1: yeah, yeah, see, you're calling me utopian, but what you've just said is just as utopian. The, the Oslo agreement is more than 30 years old and not one centimetre of it has been implemented. The Palestinians are not free on one centimetre of their land as they were promised in the Oslo agreement. So you're flying the utopian flag of a return to Oslo. I'm flying what I think is a better utopian future of a single Israel-Palestine state where every person has one vote, every person is the equal of the other, equal before the law, equal religion, and so on. Let's call it the holy land. That might be utopian, Raymond, but so is your idea. And as for your nightmarish, nightmarish idea that the Palestinians, who, by the way, are 25 percent Christian and 75 percent Sunni Muslim and who are all Arabs, should go and live in a non-Arab country called Iran. No, that's not utopian, Raymond. That's
5: bonkers. <laughs> but I think you're right. But, but how many people have tried to resolve that crisis over the years, George? Do you know what I mean? Like Tony Blair went thought well, he you could do a in the early two thousand. You I, know what I mean? It's like it's, it's yeah. Why shouldn't we just let them All crack on? Right, but you asked me. You you asked me. Well, we could,
1: of course, if that's what you would like. But you're not just letting them do anything, are you? You're supporting Israel. Britain and America are supporting one side of this conflict. Just letting them crack on with it has its attractions to me. There's 350 million Arabs. There's nearly 100 million Persians. There's one and a half billion Muslims. Just letting them crack on with it has some attractions to me. but. Israel has nuclear weapons because we permitted them and facilitated, enabled them to have it. Secondly, we are arming and funding Israel. So we're not just doing a Pontius Pilate here, Raymond, washing our hands of this conflict. We are a party to the conflict,
5: aren't we? But I can't see how that can... Because Russia wouldn't, Russia's got a good relationship with Israel, and so has obviously America as their main supporter. Do you see what I mean? But Israel, Mm -hmm. as as has Taiwan, it's got a right to defend itself, hasn't it? Now, I'm, I'm very glad that the Taiwanese people earlier this year decided, do you know what, we're not really comfortable with how this is going, and they voted against. So I was really glad of that, but at the same time, they should, if they want to, have the right to defend themselves. And unfortunately, they are being bombed by Palestinians. Whom? So obviously, are only response themselves, to that, violence...
1: Of- defend themselves with nuclear weapons against their own people in their own land whose brutal occupation is now almost 50 years in existence. What kind of defence would that be?
5: Escalated to the situation. It didn't start off with, the, with that premise today. It? It's just that obviously there's a hard line group of Palestinians against a hard line Israeli government. It's not all the Palestinians. If one of them, that them are has got, got nuclear there's a small weapon. number what, who what? continue to form target. Raymond,
1: Raymond, Raymond, one of those two parties is a nuclear weapons state. The other is not. Now why should Israel be permitted to threaten all of its neighbors with nuclear weapons.
5: Why? But nuclear weapons has always been a, a defense. They've not been used since okay. 1945. So, all right, all right,
1: all right. So should Iran be allowed nuclear weapons for its defense?
5: I'll agree with you on that. That That's shot answer, you up, Raymond? Yes, they
1: okay, we found a rare agreement, me and Raymond in Swansea. Both Iran and Israel should be permitted nuclear weapons to defend themselves. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Thanks, Raymond. Well, uh, the British government is in a state of disarray. The Prime Minister this morning thrice refused to answer a question, an obvious common or garden question. Uh, on the BBC as to whether or not he personally used the National Health Service. Given that he's a billionaire and that his party has driven the National Health Service to the edge of collapse, you'd have to question his sanity if he actually was still or ever using the National Health Service. But it didn't go down well because the vast majority of people in this country have no choice but to use a national health service that is truly at death's door. There's talk in the papers this morning, only a week after I myself here from this platform, uh, hypothesized that actually the Tories are going to have to get rid of Sunak. He's a rich man's list trusts. And I can't put it any more insultingly than that. Let's talk to a real expert from the corridors of power. Kevin Marr, a former Labour ministerial advisor and now a best-selling author and analyst, joins me now and not for the first time. He's a very popular guest of ours. Kevin, welcome back to the show. Good evening, George. Uh, let Happy me start with that. Uh, Boris, uh, Happy New Year to you. Let me start with that Boris thing. Uh, when desperate Dan Hodges in the Mail on Sunday gives over more or less his whole column today uh, to a discussion of whether or not the Tories are going to have to ditch Rishi, Uh, there must be some rumblings going on at Westminster to that effect, no?
2: It's it's a little bit like uh, I suspect being British Prime Minister these days is a little bit like being a junior officer at the Somme, quite frankly. Um, corporals becoming lieutenants um, in, in the in the blink of a, a blink of a, a bombshell. Um, this is unprecedented. We, we've not been in this this situation before. I mean, there was, I think, some pause um, when the Conservative MPs went into to, to knife Boris Johnson that you couldn't replace a sitting Prime Minister that's won an election. Um, more than once. That that, that you know, if, you, if you're going to do this once, then it's it's got to be Liz Truss And of course, uh, forty odd days later it was it was Rishi Sunak. So, so so they've they've done something that's pretty much unprecedented in British politics for as far back as you, as you would like to go, really. Um, and it seems that the bloodletting might not have ended. Um, that there's, there's still this this rich vein of speculation about um, Boris Johnson and a Potential return, uh, return bout. Um, which, which you know, if you'd have said this a few months ago, you, you would have said that's just absolute uh, fantasy. But of course, Boris Johnson is, is, a, is a breaker of conventions in, in, in lots and lots of ways. And the fact that he's still got outriders, uh, very credibly, um, I think, I think, trying to plot a, a return, a return, um, to number 10 for him, um, tells you, um, two things it tells you that the British politics is in many ways. In, in a free fall at the moment, given the, given the welter of, of domestic problems that that would befall any government. And it also tells you that Rishi Sunaki is not the kind of magic bullet for the Conservatives. He's not the person that, that inspires um, great deals of admiration and trust clearly in his own party, never mind the country, um, with, with Boris Johnson still seen as a, as a kind of plausible contender, which is, as I say, extraordinary stuff. But um, that's where we are at the start of 2023.
1: Well, uh, it's amazing to think that anybody thought that Rishi Sunak would be the magic uh, bullet uh, for anything. As they say, Rishi Sunak uh, is the answer. It must have been a very stupid question. But uh, I'm actually reading uh, an early uh, part of uh, Johnson's hero, Churchill's life at the moment. It's about his time as Member of Parliament uh, in my own home city of Dundee, called oh. Cheers, Mr. Churchill. It's not a bad book, actually. Uh, and the, uh, the thing that struck me was that Churchill did all these convention-breaking things. He ratted and then re-ratted. He was a conservative, then a liberal, then a radical liberal, then a conservative again. Uh, he, uh, he got sacked multiple times. Uh, from uh, the cabinet and was always plotting his return. He, he went to the extreme of uh, going to the trenches in the First World War as uh, a battalion commander of the Royal Scots Fusiliers, they of, uh, of, of the charge of the Light Brigade, Ben Wallace's yeah. regiment. Uh, that's how it, that, and he only did it, and risked his life many times in the trenches in order to force his way back into the cabinet, having been sacked over the Dardanelles. Um, Boris has only just gone on a book tour and for some big paying uh, speaking events, not quite the same. But you see my point that, uh, Mm. you know, rules mean nothing to the likes of Churchill or Johnson, neither in their personal nor in their public life.
2: I think that's true. I think it, it reflects that remark of of, of Napoleon Bonaparte about uh, "bring me lucky generals." And I think, I think, uh, you know, Conservative MPs will be saying, "Are we going to win the next general election?" Rishi, Rishi Sunak is the, the, the kind of classic managerial politician. He's a very bright, perfectly intelligent man, but there's nothing there that, that really inspires. Um, and and you know, to to mix to mix my quotes up. I mean, I mean, you know, you campaign in poetry, you govern in prose, and 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 Boris perhaps wasn't brilliant at governing in prose, although he had people around him who who, who have managed to confect a reputation obviously with, with the vaccine rollout and one or two other things that, that actually he has substantive things under his belt. Now, in, in fine detail, some of that falls apart. But nevertheless, for the Boris narrative, um, it kind of works that that here, here he was, he takes on the big challenges and has a good sense of positioning, even if in the small details, he's not great. Now, now, now Richie Sunak is the kind of the exact opposite of that. He is he's obviously a detail man. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's working through uh, ministerial boxes. So all the documents that civil servants shovel in his red box of an evening. Rishi Sunak is, we're told, assiduous at going through all these things in a way that Boris Johnson certainly wasn't. So so, so very much yin and yang. But but, Conservative MPs will be looking ahead 18 months and saying, we've got to have a general election in, in autumn 2024, pretty much at the latest. Um, is Rishi Sunak the man to help us cross the line and win another term in office? Or... Um, is Boris Johnson, with, with all his chaos that follows around him, still has that kind of political magic touch, um, a connection perhaps with the British public that the Rishi Sunak just simply does not have. Um, and, and actually, that Boris is the person having won, you know, a, a big majority for the Conservatives, you know, in, in, in 2019. You can't take that away from him, an 80-seat majority from a government that was already in power and all kinds of difficulties under... Uh, David Cameron and Theresa May and all the rest of it. Johnson wins big, including this mythical red wall of of of, of traditional Labour seats in the north of England and, and the east and west Midlands that all went blue for the first, many of them for the first time ever. So so Boris Johnson's a bit of a lucky talisman for a lot of Conservative MPs who are looking and saying, frankly, if it wasn't for him, I probably wouldn't be in this place anyway. So so, so when it comes to a second hearing or, or perhaps a third hearing um, for Boris Johnson, there's there's no doubt there are Conservative MPs and we're told um, the party grassroots as well that that would welcome um, Boris coming back into the, into the fray. So, Rishi Sunak will spend 2023. Um, I think looking over his shoulder a great deal. He's got potentially a difficult set of local elections in May. He's got opinion polls, which are which are pretty dismal and dreary. He's got an economy that's in recession and a, a pretty deep recession. We've got all the workings of Brexit and COVID, which are causing their own particular problems as well, compounding some of the difficulties that, that he's got. So he's not got a lot of good news lying around. He's got public services in crisis. I mean, the NHS, you know, facing an absolutely perfect storm of of issues, problems, workforce issues, strikes, Pay 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 um, disputes. Um, it's it's already one hundred and thirty thousand vacancies in the NHS anyway. It limped into COVID, very much undergund under strength to begin with, and of course coming out of COVID, what we've got is seven million um, a backlog of seven million elective operations that have to that have to take place. And, and you know, so, so so public services are bad. The economy is pretty dreadful. The international climate is is certainly not good. Sunak's got to kind of refashion a relationship with the European Union, which is still Britain's biggest export market as well. And, and he's got some very difficult domestic politics as well. And it, it feels almost as though, you know, this intray from hell is almost beyond anybody. But but Rishi Sunak is selling himself as the man who can, a, a sort of, you know, disciplined, focused problem solver. And it's whether that's going to be enough by, you know, autumn 2023, perhaps by the party conference season, when Conservative MPs maybe say, look, 12 months from this point, we're going to be in an election campaign for, for, our, for our political lives is he the person that, that instills that sense of leadership and confidence that he can get us through that campaign there's a lot of them that already say he isn't and we'd rather have the last guy back or, or the one before the, the last person back um, and 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 that's all grist to the mill for, i think for boris johnson he will spend the next year making i'm sure the odd pointed intervention and, and probably making quite a lot of cash on the speaking circuit as well
1: Well, I was going to ask you that, Kevin. I mean, it's the $64,000 question, or we need to add a couple of knots to that nowadays. Uh, Would Boris Johnson be open to coming back? Uh, After all, they didn't exactly treat him very well the last time he was there, Um, and he's now making a literal shed load of money. Would he be interested in
2: returning? I think he would like probably like a shot. Um, it's in the blood with 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 people like Boris. He's a creature of politics. Um, you, you know, you you could double the amount of money he's making on the speaking circuit and and, and offer him, um, you know, a chance to become prime minister again, and he, he would drop the speaking in a heartbeat. Because frankly, he can always push it back to the kind of to the kind of back end of his career anyway if he wanted to. I think I think I think he will see that his departure was not on his terms. And I think the chance to do something about that is something often prime ministers don't get a chance to to, to revisit. and um, They have to try and, try and settle the account in the memoirs. But I think Boris Johnson still feels that he's got some spring in his step and, and clearly has, I mean, you know, he clearly has... A, a big um, block of support on the Conservative benches and, of course, in, in, in the party's grassroots as well. And if Rishi Sunak were to stumble seriously, and he's, anyway, he's, as I say, he's got the tray from hell and he's bitten off a lot to chew, and it, it's whether through 2023 he, he's weighed and measured and he's, he, he's either succeeded... In, in stemming the problems in the NHS, lifting the economy out to the doldrums, sorting out the, the, the boat people um, crossings across the English Channel. They're either sorted or they're not sorted. And if they're not sorted, I suspect by the time of the party conference, these grumblings about his performance will get louder and Boris Johnson will keep positioning himself as the obvious replacement. Fascinating. Kevin Maher, as always, thanks for joining us on
1: the mother of all talk shows. Who do you support in the Royal Punch-Up, Harry or William? Get voting on my Twitter and on my YouTube channel. If you are watching on the YouTube channel, please donate on the super chat, as so many have done, and please subscribe to the channel. It helps me algorithmically, as does the simple thumbs-up tick that you like the show. Or you can vote on my... Telegram channel, t.me forward slash George Galloway. Email from Dean. Good evening, George. I thought you'd be interested to know that RT right now are breaking news that Bolsonaro's supporters are storming the Brazilian parliament. My goodness, that's uh, dramatic news. Bolsonaro, of course, left Uh, the country and went off to Miami. There's some pictures there. Uh, He he left for Miami in exile with the gold toothed emigres and it looked like he was finally accepting uh, his defeat and the swearing in of Lula looked like at least the uh, beginning of uh, Lula's second act but now that they're storming the parliament in what seems like rather large numbers and depending on the reaction of the security forces to that that's a very very interesting development we'll keep you abreast of that back to the phone lines simon in london wants to talk about harry go ahead simon
6: how you doing george happy new year mate how's things okay
1: happy new year thank you all good by the grace of god
6: Great. Well, with regards to your poll, I'd like to start by saying I'm a huge fan of boxing like yourself, and I just want to see Harry and William fight it out, you know? And we pay for them through taxes, so it should be free on TV if they really want to fight. Um, but what, bare what knuckle. I... I'm for bare knuckle. Exactly. I'm for bare knuckle, Simon. Exactly. The Fight exactly. Club. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. I, I totally fight agree. Fight Club at the Palace. At the Palace, yeah. At the Palace car park, maybe. Who knows, in that big square they've got there. But anyway, <laughs> with regards to the, uh, with regards to the uh, book he's written... Uh, it, 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 even staunch Republicans like me, I'm probably even bigger Republican than you are, George. Uh, I sympathize with the royals here. I mean, for the late Queen's grandson to come out with a diatribe of BS after she's died is as low as it gets. And despite my hatred for the royals, I actually feel sorry for Charles because his mother's just died. I, I I've been through something similar myself this year. It was horrible. And for someone in his own family to come out with this nonsense... Is just as low as it gets. Um, the book seems to be written by and manufactured by a series of daytime television enthusiasts, uh, loose women fanatic, and dare I say erotic novel writers like Alistair Campbell, who you used to be at one time. I mean, at one point it sounds like some cheap soap opera. And another time it's the Oprah Winfrey slash Jerry Springer show. And at the other time, uh, it sounds like 50 shades of grey, or should I say 50 whiffs of a big steaming pile of bullshit. You know, anyone reading this book would realize the target audience are people who watch these kind of shows. I mean, small minor incidents are given dramatic embellishments purely for exaggerations. Now, it's interesting, a couple of, a couple of years ago, you probably won't remember this, because it's in like the 2000s, and it's not my kind of music, but Simon Cowell during the pop idol craze made, made a comment saying that he could easily make Prince William into a crooner, into a, like a um, a tortured soul type crooner, you know. Now, for years, the music industry and the media mongols have been trying to get guys like famous people, like politicians and famous people, on effectively lay themselves bare and uh, take the forbidden fruit. And unfortunately, Harry's taken taken the bait and he's suffered consequences for it. But it's even worse. I think it's even much, much worse than that. For starters, British soldiers who went to fight in Iraq You know, a lot lot of them came back with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know. Some of them will never be the same again. And for Harry to boast about how many people he killed in Iraq not only is hugely disgraceful with regards to British and Afghan relations, you know, it's literally a slap in the face to those soldiers who put their lives on the line and and suffered. Some of them died uh, for for, for the the defense of our country, you know. And it just shows as well how massively out of touch not just Harry but the entire royal family are uh, with with the rest of the UK as far as i'm concerned you know they're not ordinary people they're not ordinary people so um i think the most honorable thing charles can do is just well, remove their royal uh,
1: titles uh, we have, uh, even removing the royal titles will achieve what uh, precisely i've got to say simon for a republican you sure have thought a lot about this issue of the british royal family but i'm not blaming you for that because the public prints are absolutely chock full of it I thought you put it very powerfully, very well. It's a Jerry Springer show. And the Jerry Springer, whom I know actually, had breakfast with him last time he was here in London. uh, Jerry Springer knew the formula. uh, And that's the formula that Harry and Meghan are uh, following. Um, To paraphrase Oscar Wilde, you'd have to have a heart of stone not to laugh. You say you feel sorry for Charles. No power on earth, no wild horses, could pull me into position of feeling sorry for Charles, or Horseface, horse face, uh, Camilla. There's no uh, way I'll ever feel sympathy for any of them. And from everything I know, and I do know quite a bit, uh, that William's not as nice as he looks, you know. Uh, uh, it seems to me that, that uh, William is his father, and Harry is his mother. So to that extent, this is Diana's revenge. It's maybe George Washington's revenge because it's all been wrecked by an American abroad. An American broad abroad. An American divorced broad abroad. An American who was a Roman Catholic and became a Protestant only to join the British royal family. You'd have to have a heart of stone not to laugh at that one. Helen. In Halifax, on the issue of our "No to NATO" uh, event, Helen, welcome.
7: Oh, hello. Thank you. Um, yes, uh, I, I've had a problem, uh, George, trying to buy a ticket for the NATO "No to NATO" event. Um, And yes, I was wondering if um, anybody else had had a a problem with it, you know, whether it's just me being a conspiracy theorist, I don't know. But I thought I'd just...
1: Well, we've we've shifted a lot of tickets. Uh, Admittedly, uh, many of those are fraudulent and have no intention of turning up. But we have our own special measures uh, about that. But uh, hundreds at least three or four hundred genuine legitimate audience members are already signed up to come and uh, the event is six or seven weeks away. So what was your problem, Helen?
7: Well, I tried to buy a ticket yesterday um, and my card was declined. Um, And then I uh, tried twice more, it declined again and again. And, well, these things happen. I thought maybe it's a blip, you know. But then this morning, I've gone to the shop to buy my cigarettes, and my card's been declined again. Um, What? So I rang the bank um, to see what was going on with my card. And as it turned out, it had been blocked. Um, They'd stopped stopped me using this, you know, they stop blocked the card itself. And I, I said, what's going on? They said, well, there, there's been suspicious activity on it. I said, what suspicious activity? It's not left my side. You know, it's not left my handbag. And they um, said, you, you did a transaction and, and no to NATO. I said, yes. They <laughs> said, um... Uh, it's been flagged up as suspicious activity. I said it's a it's a public wow. event, well publicised public event on Eventbrite that I'm trying to buy a ticket for. Well, it's flagged up as da-de-da. I said, well, why is it? Why is it? why have you blocked my card? I mean, they had tried to phone me, to be fair to them, I have to say, you know, and I've dropped my phone down the toilet this week, so, so they probably couldn't get in touch
1: with me. Is your bank you need to drop down the toilet. <laughs> yes. What an absurd... I don't know whether to what? laugh or I know. cry I said, is that, it political? Uh, story. I said to him, is it political? He said, absolutely at not. That, at, at that stage, it was 80 pence... Right? For the ticket, yes, yeah. <laughs> so you tried Fine. to spend 80 My. pence yes. yes. on a ticket for our event yeah. and got your card blocked yeah. because it was yeah. suspicious. Right. I'll tell you what the best construction I can put on that. They thought it so suspicious that for just 80 pence you got to hear live. George Galloway, Max Blumenthal, Chris Williamson, Anya Parampel, Claire Daly, Mike Wallace, Andy Hudd, Low Key. All these people for just 80 pence can't possibly be true. Thanks, Helen, and good luck getting your card back. Uh, Cheryl in Oklahoma is back on the line. Let's hear from her. Go ahead, Cheryl. Yes, good afternoon, George. How are you doing? By the grace of God, good ma'am. Thanks for calling. What would you like to say?
8: Well, I want to thank you for supporting women's rights. Uh, I am I know you're having problems in England and Scotland, and I'm in America, and we're having dra- drastic problems here. I mean, if you say a man is not a woman, that'll get you cancelled off websites, and... Uh, it's just it's unbelievable. It's yeah,
1: unbelievable. I'm an, oh, an old. In fact, woman, you can be I arrested. Before.
8: I know. You know, I'm a former triathlete, and I know very well the body differences between men and women, regardless of whether they take a year of estrogen or whatever. There's so many different, you know, compositions of the body that it's they're just taking away women and girls' rights like we don't exist. I never thought you know that this small group i wonder who's behind it why is the government and so many people supporting men who and i mean if they want to feel like they're women they can do whatever they want i care less about somebody's sex life or whether they how they dress but i do care when they start taking away women and girls rights to please this group and i get called a turf and transphobic well, and a uh, bigot
1: Yeah, uh, TERFs and cis and transphobic and all this uh, alphabet soup of abuse. uh, We've all had it, uh, Cheryl, and quite uh, unexpected in your case as a a woman. Uh, I myself have ended up a champion of women, a champion of feminism, uh, which not many people would have predicted given my age and class. Uh, but because I respect women and demand that their rights be respected, I have become abused quite often by men, actually, Uh, not that often by trans people themselves, uh, who are, as you say, exceedingly few in number. So the British census results have just emerged. And it turns out, that only 0.5% of the British population identifies as trans. Uh, Now, when you think of that vanishingly small percentage and then compare it with the gigantic fuss that there is in British social, cultural, political life over the issue of trans you wonder what's in it for whom, and that's what I can't work out. I spoke about it, Cheryl, at length on Wednesday. I'm still no further forward. You see, if I thought there was a lot of votes in it, uh, I'd understand it, but there aren't. 0.5 is a very small percentage of the population, and in any case, will not be voting homogeneously for one particular. Party or another, not least because all of the British political parties have become transmaniacs. So it's not about votes. It's hard to see that it's about economic interests because uh, some of that 0.5 are poor souls, really, more to be pitied when I see some of the pictures of them, oftentimes going to jail and uh, demanding to be put in a women's prison and so on, I, I, my heart goes. I say, God, love them. Uh, these are poor, pathetic souls. So I doubt if it's for, you know, there's not. We're not talking the pink pound here. You know, capitalism went all out for gay rights because the pink pound was a substantial uh, economic interest, and it's very good that they did, but. I'm at a loss, Cheryl, to work out whose interests are being served by the transmania that is now abroad. Last uh, word to you, Cheryl, if you're still there.
8: Yeah, you know, I agree with you. There's money and power behind this. And I think it's a big lie that they want to manipulate the people to fight about. The powers that be would prefer we, you know, convince us of a big lie because if they convince convince of a big lie they can convince us of anything and they're just you know really messing with people to have a fight among themselves to not look at what's going on but you know it amazes me at the people and we need more men that will stand up for women because this craziness is affected and women and girls are losing their rights and it's and it's sure. scary to you know uh, be treated like this in a society that uh, you suddenly, you know, don't have any rights to even have fair sports competitions, or in prison where you could be raped because you know exactly. being trans doesn't yeah, you, mean you, you, could you could are a sexual you could be,
1: predator. You could be, yeah, you could be raped in a woman's prison by a man who's identifying as a woman and has been sent to that prison. You can have your privacy, your space in changing rooms and in lavatories and so on, uh, invaded in a way that you don't want to. I have an elderly mother, I have a wife, I have three daughters, and one of my daughters has herself three daughters, and so I feel it's my duty to stand up for that. Isn't that what a man is supposed to be? Somebody that stands up for women, protects them and defends them, Is certainly what a man was when I was growing up and was defined as in my uh, lifetime. Cheryl, thanks uh, for the call. Dennis is in Northampton on the state of the National Health Service.
9: Dennis, welcome. Hello, George, and uh, Happy New Year to you. And um, I'm phoning to say... And you, thank you. I I'm I'm saying how much I enjoy your your show I think it's fantastic and you, you 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 speak the truth about everything and it's really uh wonderful and I look forward to um listening to you 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 make uh, lots you. of good comments and no matter what people say about you George you you're a good man you really are um yeah I'm Thanks eight, Dennis I, I'm I'm 81 George and and, and I'm extremely worried about the health service. I mean, it's one of, as you know, it's one of the best institutions uh, that we've got and um, to have to wait and queue for, wait for uh, two or three hours for an ambulance is appalling. I think, George, the the only way forward now really is uh, for the Conservatives to admit that they've run out of ideas uh, and they, they shouldn't be carrying on in government. Uh, we should be having now having a general election, and let's have a change of direction. I don't know uh, what that direction would be, but it, it's 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 awful the way the country's going. And can I just say, George, the other thing about you mentioned about um, your children um, about going to school and they're teaching them uh, about gay uh, gay issues. I think you're dead right. Uh, they shouldn't be teaching children that at school. Uh, it, it, it's appalling. I mean, children, young children at the uh, primary school age, should be learning about how to read and how to write and, and how to hold their soul. Read, write, and arithmetic
1: would be a fine thing. Dennis, thank you. God bless you for the kind things that you said. I, I have no problem. Uh, as I said on Wednesday, I hope powerfully. Uh, I was a pioneer of gay rights in this country, in Parliament, and outside of it, uh, I hold an award from Stonewall. I am uh, uh, proud of, in a time when, frankly, it was not as easy as it is now uh, to have been that pioneer of gay rights. So it's nothing to do with, uh, with uh, gay. Uh, issues that I'm complaining about. I don't want my children to be exposed to anything about sex at primary school, at the age of five, never mind at the age of eight. I don't want my children to be asked if they identify as uh, heterosexual or bisexual or Gay, I don't want them to be asked that. I don't believe they even know what that means or should know what that means. I don't want them to be taught about masturbation uh, when they are at primary school. I'm appalled, outraged at that idea. I don't want them to be introduced to the idea that there's not uh, two uh, genders, there's 97 or 970 or whatever the latest uh, alphabet and, no, and numeracy stew uh, is claiming that. there. I don't want my children to be exposed to that. I want my children to be happy as children at primary school and maybe even learn a thing or two about reading, writing and arithmetic. Dennis, God bless you and Thanks. Email from Mike Kelly. George, you should be our Prime Minister. Please do a poll on this and get the ball rolling. Kind regards. How very nice of you, Mike, to say. Kate in Horbury wants to talk about Harry. There's something about Harry, Kate, isn't there? I just, I mean, I'm just
7: appalled. I lost my husband of 53 years on the 30th of December, unexpectedly. Does this Sorry young man with all his millions, with his beautiful house, two wonderful children, does he not know what it's like? Does he not know what it's like hanging on for an hour and a half to get through to DWP? Because you have to pay his pension back. He should, he should just, my mother used to say, don't make mountains out of all hills. If you moan about things, it'll come back to haunt you. I'm just just appalled that he just thinks that, oh, he'll moan, but all the rest of us are having a wild time, aren't we? I'm sorry, Mr. Yellow.
1: Well, Kate, uh, no, uh, uh, that's a very moving uh, call, and everyone watching and listening uh, now or after the show will be uh, reaching out to you. Their hearts will go to you uh, with your loss and your sadness, and you are right that these are people who are amongst the most privileged people on the earth, who've never had to worry about the gas bill or the electric bill or how much the petrol is now, who've never had to worry at the checkout as to whether they're going to be able to afford the purchases that they have put onto the to to the conveyor belt. These are people who never have to worry about where the next meal is coming from, who are surrounded by sycophants and staff and uh, all the luxuries that that, uh, capitalism in this late stage can still offer uh, the elites. They have power and influence, uh, and yet they are never done whinging about how how they've been done a bad turn. Now, I've had disagreements with my brother, but I've never punched him. And if William did punch Harry, he needs some anger management. On the other hand, if Harry did need a therapist, because he fell out and had a rumble with his brother but regarded the 25 human beings that he killed as mere chess pieces and regretted only that he had not killed more, if that did not require therapy then that makes Harry a monster. William might be a bully but Harry is a monster. Was he a monster before he met this broad? Or was it her that turned him? I think they are all in a narcissistic, self-obsessed bubble. When they should be thanking God for all the luxuries that they enjoy, they are instead knifing each other in the back, leaving each other bleeding on the floor into a dog bowl or not but the the overwhelming feeling i have about it all is that the fools are us not only are we paying for all this but we are continuing to s- support the idea that our heads of state should be decided by who was the first child out of the queen it's madness it really is madness it could look it could have been harry it could have been jack the ripper it could have been norman wisdom it could have been an outright maniac that was the first baby to be delivered to the reigning monarch Are you seriously saying that we should be ruled and governed? It's bad enough, Rishi Sunak, but what a double act. Rishi and Charlie, really, they make Laurel and Hardy look like Bertrand Russell and Albert Einstein. Thanks for the opportunity to say that. I'm told that the Samaritans are available 24-7. They're available anytime. It's a free phone. It's 116113. 113 Or there's atalost.org for bereavement, support, and counseling. It's open until 9 p.m. tonight and from 9 a.m. tomorrow. God bless you. Okay.
9: Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.
1: uh, Malcolm is on the line in
0: Glasgow, also to talk about Harry. Go ahead, Malcolm. I am indeed calling George, and you will probably accuse me of calling from Ward Thirteen at the local mental hospital. Um, but uh, no, great show <laughs> congratulations I want, I want. on your million plus views. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah. So I'm actually calling about Harry and it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm actually watching on catch up on YouTube. So I'm a bit behind and I just listened to the last intro you were saying about that. Now you touched on the point of narcissism there, George, and let's, let's call a spade a spade. Yes. Um, Megan is a narcissist, as Trump is, and let's go for that. But I would actually argue that, that Harry's potentially a codependent. He's been, he's been hoodwinked by the whole thing. Now, what's gone on in my family would make your toes curl, George, as you say. I mean, like, yeah, and I, I just don't want to put it out there. Do you know what I mean? But let's have a look at what's been going on with that. Is Harry thick? Yes. Was, um, was Hewitt thick? I don't know. Philip, he had a room in every single pub in, in London in the 50s, and then look at Mountbatten, he loved his young children, and then you look at William, he could put a peg in a round hole. Um, so, what, where do they originate from, George? Is it all a German sort of, sort of inbred thing, or is it like from Henry VIII? Where do these people come from? They're not
1: right. Well, Mr. Ben used to say, Malcolm, uh, how do you think the great and the good became the great and the good? How do you think the nobility, as they call themselves, no-ability, I call them, how do you think the aristocrats became the aristocrats? They murdered people and took their land and took their castle because the last guy did the same to the guy that had the land, the castle, the property before that. They are brigands. They were brigands. They... Uh, murdered each other they stole each other's wives they uh, they they fornicated with uh, each other's wives they are the they are the pits they are the scum of the earth that rose to the top by wickedness by uh, shrewdness and uh, if necessary by ruthless violence i mean they're only the royal family now because the two princes, little children, were murdered in the Tower of London so that this current line uh, could come to power in the first place. But my point, Malcolm, is that why are we so stupid as to continue all of this? Are we not infantilizing ourselves by Robert, do, do, accepting... George, sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry all of to, this,
0: last word to you. Yes, yeah, sorry last to interrupt to you, Mark. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, George, but Genghis can he, he helped global warming and that's my last word. And thank you for the show. Really enjoying it. Take care, mate.
1: Thanks, Malcolm. I'll work what that one means out afterwards. Well look, it's uh it's been a, a quite a tumultuous discussion. Uh, we haven't all agreed. We've discussed uh Israel and Palestine and trans rights and gay rights. We've discussed Rishi, Sunak. But inevitably, as the clock ticks towards nine o'clock, we are discussing this royal imbroglio. If the royal family were models, paragons of virtue and ability, if they were Olympian, towering intellect, if they were square-jawed, lantern-jawed, barrel-chested physical specimens of the highest rank, it would still be absurd that we are literally bowing and curtsying to people for no other reason than that they happen to be born in a family that by the kind of means I've just been describing are known today as the royal family. I bow to nobody except God. I bow to no man or woman. I bow only to God, but I respect others. And in particular, I must respect them if they have been chosen by the people to represent them, to preside over them, to elect a head of state is such a basic, basic right. I'm amazed that there's not tens of millions of us out there demanding it now. As I say, that would have been an irresistible demand even if we had a royal family of the first rank, but they are like the inmates of a Jerry Springer show. They have no morals. They have no intellect. None of them has any ability or gift that has ever been displayed to us. Have any of them ever written a book? Written a play? painted a portrait, composed music, played a cello, passed an exam. They are the most mediocre, middle-class posers. it's possible to imagine, and yet we've still got millions of stushies in our country that will bow and scrape to them and would punch me in the face right now for what I have just said about them. It is infantilization. It is absurd. Now I'll let you off to watch the ITV interview. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you, and if it was, come back on Wednesday at 9 p.m. UK time. Wednesday, 9 p.m. UK time for the Midweek Mother of All Talk Shows and bring another viewer with you. Why don't you? It's Elvis' birthday today,
4: and I will never forget him. I've got my blue sweat shoes on.